Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Vent. This is Vent Weekly. A collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture. Let's get a cracking. Hey, and welcome to Vent Weekly. I'm Amelia. And I'm Sabrina. Each episode, we chat to a journalist or expert about a topic we think is important. Say happy Valentine's Day, girl. Oh my God, thank you so much. Loki hate this day, but happy Valentine's Day to you too. I just... You know, it's just one of them days just so full of love. So, you know? <laughs> I mean, we should be full of love every day. But yeah, we yeah. should. We should. I think we should show our partners appreciation 24-7. I don't think it should be dedicated to one day. Mm-hmm. But whatever your thoughts are on Valentine's Day, this week is the first time legal gay marriages are taking place in Northern Ireland, which is pretty hard not to be happy about as well. But why has this taken so long? And why did England pass this law first? What do I think about Valentine's Day? It's good for Hallmark and card companies. <laughs> Price of roses goes up by three times, so I... Swipe left. <laughs> what do I think about Valentine's Day? I think it's a nice ploy to get people to buy stuff that they probably don't need. I did know that this is the first time same-sex couples can get married in Northern Ireland on Valentine's Day. My flatmate is Northern Irish and gay, so he should be on this and he should be telling me these things. Today we've invited Vice Executive Editor Zing Zen and Jess Sargent from the Institute of Government to talk about the legalisation of gay marriage in Northern Ireland and why Northern Ireland has different laws to the UK. Hey Jess, hey Zing, could you guys introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Jess Sargent, I'm a devolution researcher at the Institute for Government. And I'm Zing Zing, I'm the Executive Editor of Vice UK. So just to start off, could you give us a quick definition of gay marriage and a civil partnership? Well, um, civil partnerships predate gay marriage or same-sex marriage, as it's more commonly called. So civil partnerships were introduced by the Labour government in 2004, which I know seems like a long, long time ago. But at the time, it was a really huge step towards uh, better LGBTQ acceptance in society. And then in 2013, England, Scotland and Wales then introduced same-sex marriage. Okay, so what's the difference between them two? So... Civil partnerships are sort of like a non-religious equivalent of marriage. So, you know, in marriage where you have to go up to the altar and say your vows, say, you know, I wed thee, your husband and wife. There's none of that kind of religious or gendered kind of language being used. 
if you're in a civil partnership, you're called civil partners. You're not called husband and wife. And for some people, that's preferable. That's why there was a really big push towards getting civil partnerships introduced for mixed gender couples, so for heterosexual couples. And that's just been introduced this year. But why do you think that people care so much about like who can and can't get married in terms of like legalising it? Like why should that be like a legal action, especially for homosexual couples? I think the answer is, is that marriage and civil partnerships convey a lot of importance and legal right. Stuff like inheritance, for instance, things like visitation rights. If you study fall ill in hospital, who gets to visit you? All these kind of legalistic things that a lot of people don't like to think about because in many cases, they only apply when shit goes really, really wrong. That's the reason why it's important that people's relationships are recognised in law. I don't know, Percy, if I would consider that over marriage. Like, Amelia, what, like, what would you, what do you think? I don't know think? about that because I guess, um, I guess it kind of depends on how much you value religion, generally speaking, because I think um, to a lot of cultures and people in general, like marriage is a commitment to yourselves, like, to each other and to God or like to whoever you guys worship. And so that I think a civil partnership just kind of eliminates the God aspects, which I think is fair. But then I kind of don't agree with the different title of it. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. What do you think, Jess? Yeah, so I think that what's important is that there's both uh, homosexual and heterosexual couples are seen as equal. Mm -hmm. And I think when homosexual couples could only be in civil partnerships, that was kind of seen as like a lesser relationship. So I think that's why there was such a big push for same-sex marriage in order to make it equal, essentially. So Zing, in which countries is gay marriage illegal and which countries are they legal? So where actually... Interestingly, where I was born and where I grew up, Singapore gay marriage is still illegal. Um, in Asia, most countries don't allow for gay marriage. Taiwan recently legalised it last year, which was a really, really big deal for the region. In most of, I think, Eastern Europe and Central Europe, it's not it's not legal. But you'd be surprised at how many Western European countries where it's still not allowed. So, for instance, Italy and Switzerland still don't allow gay marriage. What? My God. Yeah, I know. I would think that they would. Yeah. Wait, was um, Taiwan the first Asian country to legalise gay so marriage, I think? It's, so New Zealand and Australia were ahead of them and technically they're considered part of Asia because they're Australasia. Mm. Oh. But Taiwan, <laughs> yeah. but Taiwan is the first, I guess you would call it, majority Chinese country to have legalised it. It's kind of interesting how the law don't accommodate for people and there's a large community of those people. Like, it's, it's quite... Yeah, in, in Singapore, where I grew up, um, a lot of the reason that the government puts forward for not legalising it is essentially that it's an Asian country and it's got conservative Asian values. But that's obviously kind of, I don't want to say bullshit, but I think it is bullshit. If you look at examples like Thai, Taiwan, there's no reason why it differs from Singapore in mm. that, you know, they're both Asian countries. They just happen to have decided that they want to allow LGBT people rights. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't get why that one part of a community... Um, in a society can benefit and be happy and content and then the others are just like upset because they can't live in the way that they want to live legally like I don't think it's fair yeah and it goes back to what Jess is saying about equality there's no reason why straight people and gay people should have different rights yeah Exactly. Just going on from what you said, I definitely think it's a front because in Nepal, we have the same situation. So gay marriage is still illegal. It's a small group of people who think that but have the most power and that's why it's not getting pushed forward. So same-sex marriage was passed by Parliament um, by England and Wales in 2013, but it's happened so much later for Northern Ireland. Like uh, you have a very kind of Catholic thinking country it takes a little bit longer to warm people up to 
to their ideas. I'm a big believer for same-sex marriage. I feel like anyone should be able to get married and not feel restrictions on relationships and laws and stuff like that. Um, I think it's taken so long in Northern Ireland because basically we have a very backwards politics system. I think that's because of the influence of the church. I think Northern Ireland is possibly a bit more conservative. I hope that lots of people um, go out and enjoy themselves and do what they've wanted to do for years and haven't been able to. For Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, they have what's called devolution, um, which is where power is transferred from the central government um, in the the UK, from the UK Parliament, the UK government to um, governments there. So you've got the Scottish Parliament, um, the Welsh Assembly and the Northern Ireland Assembly. And they've got some powers um, to make their own laws in certain areas. Um, And so in this area, Northern Ireland decided um, that it didn't want to follow the rest of the UK in legalising gay marriage. That's why it's taken so long for this to change. Were there any reasons as to why they like? they gave as to why they didn't want to go ahead with um, legalising gay marriage. Yeah, a lot of the reasons that we've been kind of talking about as, as to why um, a lot of other countries don't have gay marriage, like as you were saying, um, Zing um, in Singapore um, and Sabrina like in Nepal, in that there's quite a big religious community. So in Northern Ireland, there's kind of broadly these two communities, um, unionist and nationalist, and very, very crudely, they're kind of mapped onto some religious divides. So unionist tends to be Protestant um, and nationalist tends to be Catholic. Um, and the unionists, the, the DUP, the biggest unionist party there, are really opposed um, to gay marriage. So actually back in 2015, um, the Northern Ireland Parliament passed a law that, that would have allowed gay marriage. But because of the need to kind of keep them, protect minority rights of each community, there's this special mechanism via um, through which one community can block a law. Um, and so the DUP, the unionist community, blocked this law from happening in 2015. And then we didn't see any progress on it um, until recently. So who pushed it forward now? Yep, so this time, Northern Ireland hasn't had a government for the last three years. Um, So the Northern Ireland government just got re-established at the beginning of this month. But before that, no government. Um, It's just kind of being being ruled by no one, essentially. Um, And so a lot of MPs in the Westminster Parliament thought that this wasn't acceptable, that Northern Ireland had gone too long without people having the same rights um, in Northern Ireland as they do in the UK. So there was another piece of legislation that was going through that was meant to be about um, maintaining the situation why there wasn't a government and MPs added an amendment to that to say that the UK government had to make gay marriage legal in Northern Ireland and that's what we see happening now. So there was an attempt to block it. Um, The DUP again, despite the fact they haven't been in government for three years, tried to um, reconvene the parliament and block the law but they weren't successful in that. That's good news. Yeah, that's so (laughs) crazy. Like I just feel my head if London and Westminster wasn't involved, do you still think that Northern Ireland would have passed? Like, let's say they did, they had a government. Do you th- feel like it would have been passed eventually? I hope so. So, as, as I said, they were really close to it um, back in back in 2015. It was mainly the DUP, one party that blocked it, but there was another unionist party um, that also could c- kind of helped them. And this other un- smaller unionist party, the UUP, said that if they had the chance again, they wouldn't have done that. So that's something we might have seen progress on. The other thing that was added to this this law that allowed um, gay marriage to be legalised in Northern Ireland was also a liberalisation of abortion rights. Um, so that's also um, going to happen soon. But that I think is a much more difficult issue and something that we I suspect we'd be less likely to see progress on um, if it hadn't been done in Parliament. So what so can they make their own laws on anything then or is there some things that 
because I know Parliament yeah. is sovereign, right? Yeah. So don't they have something that they can block over that or do they have their own power to do anything they want? So there are two types of powers. There's reserved powers, which are exclusively for Westminster. So there are a lot of things like foreign policy, um, defence, um, immigration, um, and then there's devolved powers. Um, so it's, it differs slightly between Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. They each have different powers, but generally things like health, education, agriculture, those parliaments could pass laws on. Now, it does get a little bit complicated. As you mentioned, the UK Parliament is sovereign. So technically and legally, the UK Parliament could just override it and pass laws in those areas, even if those those um, even if you know the Welsh Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, the Northern Ireland Assembly didn't want that. Um, but generally, it's kind of accepted that, especially when the institutions are up and running. And this is why it was such a special case in Northern Ireland um, that the local um, the local institutions there will make those laws in those areas. I feel like religion plays such a huge part in this kind of decision making but I think people need to recognise that religion doesn't isn't applicable to everyone Zing, what do you think like, do you think religion plays a big part in it or do you feel like I think yeah for the DUP definitely yeah. because I think that the DUP are majority quite you would describe them as hardline right wing Christians yeah. and that's why when Theresa May had to enter into a kind of well the technical term is a confidence and supply agreement with them so basically they need she needed their votes to prop up her government when it came to certain key votes so she entered into this agreement with them where she would support them, they would support her. Um, and that, and people got really, really upset about that because the DUP are generally seen to be quite right wing and also quite Christian and conservative in a way that isn't really reflective of so society is at the say. minute. It doesn't even reflect like they're a small group of people who dictate to a large group of a variety of people, like people from different backgrounds. I definitely feel like religion and politics should be separate because I learned about this in like during A levels and stuff. I actually think devolution is a is a good thing. In theory, it's a good thing because, in my opinion, I think it's very democratic because it allows people like the Welsh Assembly, Northern Ireland, Scotland to have, letting their people have their own rights because I feel like the UK is so big, it just makes it more central for them to have a say. So I've always been a fan of devolution, but obviously in this case for things like gay marriage and abortion, it obviously doesn't allow these things to get passed in some of these places, which is wrong. But I don't know, what would you think, Jess? Yeah, I mean, definitely when devolution, um, one of the big arguments for devolution in Scotland was to try and uh, try and stop this kind of nationalist sen sentiment um, of them to become becoming independent. I mean, there's a question of how well that's worked, um, given the present situation. Um, but certainly I think there is a big argument for people having kind of autonomy over their own lives and being able to say, this is what works for us and we're going to make our laws about that. Politics and politicians and parties just tend to ruin it because devolution to me <laughs> seems like a good thing, but they just always... I feel like, in my opinion, they're selfish and they just want it to go their own way. For example, the DUP, not really a fan of them. How would we go about like changing the public's opinions? It's really interesting because Northern Ireland has very um, unique arrangements for governance compared to, you know, in Westminster, where it's just the party that wins the most votes is in government. Um, there's a lot of emphasis put on these two communities, the unionist and nationalist. And that's because of, you know, obviously the troubles and the Good Friday Agreement and the need for peace. But it does mean that the whole system is kind of geared towards these two communities when actually... The majority of people in Northern Ireland now, 50% of people in Northern Ireland, consider themselves neither unionist or nationalist. And lots of younger people, you know, do have more progressive views and don't necessarily align um, with, with the views of the main political parties. But because the way the system is structured, it puts so much emphasis on those, on those two groups and other people perhaps get left a bit unrepresented. 
Yeah. So Jess, you just mentioned um, the troubles. And for those who probably don't know what that is, could you just like give a brief overview about what's happening in Ireland, what the troubles is? Yeah, sure. So devolution in Northern Ireland actually dates back a lot later than to Scotland and Wales. It dates back to the 1920s, uh, around the time that the Republic of Ireland became independent from the rest of the UK. Um, So the majority of the Republic of Ireland um, was Catholic, um, but there was a Protestant minority um, on on the island of Ireland, which ended up forming uh, Northern Ireland, and they wanted to remain part of the UK. Um, So when devolution first happened, there was a, a parliament there that was dominated by Protestants who wanted to remain part of the UK, which which meant that a lot of the Catholics that lived there that wanted to be part of Ireland were discriminated against, you know, in their in their work, in the housing, in all sorts of areas. And ultimately, this this created um, a civil rights movement of, of this, these Catholics who wanted um, their voices to be heard. Um, and that eventually kind of transcended into civil unrest between the two communities um, where there was violence. And that lasted um, from, you know, the 1970s all the way up until the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Um, so the Good Friday Agreement created these new institutions which created power sharing between the two communities Um, so any government had to have unionist and nationalists in it Um, and there were also these special mechanisms that allowed one community to veto a law um, if it felt that it was infringing on its rights but that's been quite difficult to make work which is why we've seen the the parliament collapse um, the Northern Ireland Assembly collapse um, quite a few times because sometimes these parties who essentially been fighting each other it was really hard to make them work together Um, but we've just seen it restore again recently um, so there's renewed hope Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating they always have their customers in mind their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you and with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Northern Ireland in Brexit negotiations was a huge stumbling block. In Brexit negotiations, I know that Northern Ireland has been a big deal because of um, the whole border situation. They don't want a hard border, so something like that. It's obviously a big issue. <laughs> no hard border, please. So do you think that because of this history that they've had, it still has relevance today? So like the DUP is just trying to uphold their tradition and their history and have pride in that? Because I feel like a lot of people people from Northern Ireland still think about that and refer to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of people uh, do feel very strong community affiliations, although that's fading somewhat and there are people that don't feel either. You know, it's still a a hugely sensitive issue, um, which is why Brexit has been such a a problem, um, because there's concerns that there'll either be a border on the island of Ireland, which would upset nationalists who want to feel that um, the island of Ireland is one area, even if technically it's kind of separated administratively. Um, But also uh, for unionists, who don't want a border, you know, in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Great Britain um, because they want to be part of the United Kingdom. Um, So it's still a very sensitive issue and still really dominates politics there. So if Northern Ireland is not happy, do you feel like it could actually cause tension and a civil war? Because if 
one side's not happy, then what happens? Yeah, I mean, what Boris Johnson still has done is a really un, like an unusual thing of actually uniting all the political parties in Northern Ireland against it. Um, so they had a vote in the Assembly and they voted unanimously against the deal. So at the moment, the parties are kind of united against the UK government um, in terms of trying to prevent as much as they can any kind of checks on the border. All of that needs to be decided during the Brexit transition period. Um, So we probably won't know until December 2020, you know, what this actually looks like. But you're right, you know, there is there is concern that if there's an arrangement that doesn't work, that that might lead um, to conflict within the executive. And I mean, one thing to mention is that I mentioned that Northern Ireland um, has only just had government again. If there's, you know, fighting, if there's there's issues um, that the parties fall out about, then we could see this happen again. And we could see the executive collapse again. Oh, wait, sorry, just going back to that. Why didn't Northern Ireland have a government for two years? Uh, for three. For yeah. three years. So, um, you know, I mentioned earlier these kind of special arrangements in which both parties have to be in government. Um, it's basically because of that. The first minister has to be from one community and the deputy first minister has to be from the other community. And if one of them resigns, then the whole government collapses. Um, so this happened back in 2017. And wow. also, just to rewind, Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit either. It didn't, yeah. no. Yeah, wow. neither did Scotland. And that's another thing we'll see, I think, going forward um, is the kind of tensions over that. Um, I'm interested to know about how the devolved states such as Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales feel about like Brexit in general anyway. So do you have any insight on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of them are not happy about it, um, mm-hmm. is, is the short answer. In Wales, the majority voted to leave, but actually the Welsh government is quite opposed to Brexit. So recently the government passed its withdrawal agreement bill. The UK government is required to ask the, the devolved parliaments and assemblies whether they agree to them. And they've all said no. Yeah, because I was about to say, do you feel like that's one negative effect of devolution is the fact that UK Parliament is sovereign so they can just stop anything they want. Yeah, I mean, it's quite unusual the way we do devolution compared to like other countries that might have what's called a federal state in which there are lots of states which kind of have their own authority and then some kind of things done by the centre. But those those states have much more power in what's and say in what's done in the centre. Which states do actually have more power with like devolution than the UK? Um, so there's places like um, Germany. They've got quite a strong federal system um, where they have uh, yeah lots of lots of different states. America is another example of that. Zing, do you have any other like negative effects of devolution, do you think, apart from like UK being sovereign? I think it honestly depends on what you think the aim of devolution should be. So, you know, we've talked about how devolution is a kind of release valve, right? But then one problem of devolution is you give people a kind of taste of what it's like to rule over themselves and have their own autonomy and have freedom in their own lives. And, you know, there's no reason why they shouldn't ask for more, because technically that should always really be a good thing to introduce that level of autonomy um, and to allow people to decide how their own lives and their governments should be run. Mm -hmm. So really, it kind of depends on what you think that ultimate aim of devolution is. And if you ask the Scottish government now, I think they would very much say, well, the ultimate aim is so that Scotland becomes an independent country and that we leave the UK because it's very clear from how the Brexit has been handled that our voices aren't being listened to. So how does England actually benefit from the other devolved states around 
their decision processes and stuff like that. And do you feel as though other states such as Scotland and Wales should also push for that level of independence as well? So I think um, the UK kind of benefits from devolution in that it allows Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to, as we were speaking about earlier, kind of express their own opinions and therefore makes independence less likely. Because at the end of the day, the UK government wants the UK to stay together. Um, It doesn't want to break up. And so certainly in the UK's opinion, none of these states should be striving towards independence independence because um, we have we have the United Kingdom. There's interesting questions about how whether devolution benefits England in other ways. So economically, actually it, it doesn't benefit England. Um, so the way that the money is is sent to the to the devolved um, administrations actually benefits those those devolved administrations. So a lot of the tax revenue that's raised in England ends up in Scotland, Wales, and Northern so Ireland. So they're not really subordinate then, are they? Like we're kind of all on a level playing field, even though they're kind of titled as devolved states. Yeah, so that would certainly be the kind of argument is that it's kind of, there is a kind of redistributive aspect to it. Mm. You know, the the United Kingdom government as a whole intends to kind of look after everyone in the UK. Um, But there's obviously questions when you get to big policy clashes like we have over Brexit, kind of what their role is and what their voice is. The devolved relationships between the four governments are not very good at the moment, um, partially because of Brexit. But they were working really well before, you know, back when uh, devolution first happened in 1998. So it's not that this system inherently works bad. This issue of Brexit has kind of brought to the fore all these kind of things that weren't really fully thought through. Um, and therefore, there's now like an argument to change it. So do you feel like to an extent in situations like this, it's good that the UK is sovereign that they have the final say because if it wasn't then it just would have it would have just taken much much longer even though I know it's taken really really long already (laughs) that is a good point in that you know someone's got to make the decision ultimately but I guess it's the question of how you come to these decisions um, and that there there is a way that you could come to these decisions a little bit more collaboratively yeah I feel like there needs to be some sort of destabilization when it comes to um, like who is actually making all these decisions and how rigid they are with it as well. And when we talk about collaborative decisions, that also needs to include the general public. No, I think that's a really good point, um, Amelia. And actually, to bring it back to the topic we started on, that was kind of how um, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, decided to, to legalise gay marriage. They held what's called um, a citizens' assembly, where you bring together a um, hundred kind of, or maybe it was more, kind of randomly selected citizens to just come and, and talk about uh, an issue and come to a conclusion and make recommendations. And actually, for ages there'd been so little progress on this issue of gay marriage because either the politicians um, didn't want it to happen because of potentially their kind of Catholic backgrounds or they were worried that if they did it there'd be a public backlash against it because they thought that people were way more Catholic and conservative than they actually were. But as you say once they actually got these people in the room and got them to talk about it they actually said no we think you should legalise gay marriage Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was a referendum and, and that actually happened so that's a really good example of exactly what you're saying you need to hear what people actually think yeah because I also think like in terms of Catholicism and just religion generally like society is becoming a lot more secular so you need to move with the times I know completely it's a really good point and I think that you know the issue with kind of making sure that more people get a voice in politics is one that can be a really double-edged sword because you see that with the Brexit referendum and I think you know the referendum on Brexit became a kind of symbolic of all the things that people weren't happy with, really. They were unhappy with immigration, they were unhappy with inequality, they were unhappy with politicians, and that all kind of came to a head with the Brexit referendum where people just voted a protest vote Mm. 
to for against the status quo, against things as they currently were. And then that's how we ended up in this situation. But because the UK doesn't have this kind of system of citizens' assemblies set up in the same way that Republic of Ireland has, people don't feel like they're properly consulted and people don't feel like they're part of the political process. When you think about it, it's kind of crazy that the main way your voice can be expressed is during elections, which historically hasn't, you know, favoured a very high turnout from certain groups, exactly. like people uh, from BAME backgrounds, uh, people under the age of 30. Those people historically don't really turn up for elections. So if you don't represent their voices somehow, how are they going to get their voice heard? I think social media is a really big thing now, especially with politics, because we could see what's happening in different countries and people from Northern Ireland could see, oh, it's legalised, here's legalised there. Why can't we do that? So just seeing that, and I think people need to remember as well, you could actually use social media to contact like your local MPs or contact people because at the end of the day, it's their duty to answer to you. So do you feel like social media also has can have an effect on politics? Yeah, and culture more generally. So um, you think about RuPaul's Drag Race, there was a Northern Ireland queen on that. Um, who, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I stole your yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out Blue Hydrangea. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, yeah the, the times are changing um, and there are different ways to kind of influence um government and policy rather than actually like being an MP. You could see that with Blue Hydrangea, like how happy she was that that like that law had been passed for Northern Ireland and like how that just completely changed the whole narrative of their lives. Like it's more personal when you look at it in that way. So thank you, Zing, and thank you, Jess, for having this conversation with us. Yeah. I think it really explained everything in detail. Mm-hmm. I've learned so much from this. I kind of, I feel like I came here thinking, oh my God, you have so many opinions, but they just kind of changed a little bit. So thank you guys so much for different perspectives. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was so much fun. So Farina, how do you feel about that? Surprisingly, it was a very interesting conversation because mm-hmm. I've learned it in university and I've learned it in A-level politics. Yeah. So when I learned it then, I was just like, oh, this topic is so boring or I don't understand it. But when we were actually speaking about it like this, I was like, wow, this this is actually interesting. And I understand how people in like Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, I understand how they feel now. These things don't really matter when you're heterosexual but when you know people who are gay like who are very close to you you realise that this was going to completely impact their lives in the future in terms of what they want to do and it's like we can just get married with ease we don't even have to think about it it's just a thoughtless action you know it's all exciting for us but for someone who just happens to like someone of the same gender they have laws around that I don't know it just gets me really emotional I'm just like oh my gosh I just don't like the whole idea of it I think people should just be allowed to be And I think laws are just completely intolerant to certain demographics of people. Thank you for listening to Vent Weekly. I've been Amelia. And I've been Sabrina. And thanks a lot to both Jess Sargent and Zing Singh for coming to chat. You can read more of Zing's work on vice.com and check out the Institute for Government for their research. This episode was produced by the Vent production team, Jess Lawson, Amelia Gill, Maweed Majid and Kamaya Sheikhaw. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent London Borough of Culture 2020. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.